Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to an episode of Through the Tech Vine. So be quiet, pay attention, and get inspired. There is one truth that is not told enough. Technology is not magic, but it can be magical. Technology is human. It is part of who we are, our evolution, our future. Will it be a dystopian or utopian one? Well, that is up to us and nobody else. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Listen up, kids. Class kids. is about to start. <laughs> you don't like that, huh? Sean, you don't be a kid? Uh, I guess I'm a kid today. <laughs> well, You're putting me in the corner, Marco. Uh, it depends <laughs> how you behave. You may you may have a hat that looks like a donkey, like uh, Pinocchio. Oh, dear. <laughs> How'd you know? You can't, you can't even see me. <laughs> is that what you're wearing? <laughs> Oh, you're Pinocchio for Halloween, I see. Is that what it is? I'm getting started early. Yes. <laughs> nice. Very, very good. Uh, exciting. This is episode number 20. Believe it or not, is a, is a milestone for the How do you spell that? Tech body. 20? Uh, <laughs> two zero. All right. <laughs> That's how I spell that. Seeing uh, how, you, how your mind works on spelling it. Uh, Two zero, two zero, and it is a big, uh, it's a big day because uh, we, we have uh, another guest, Diana. We we are in a role. You remember Crazy. when we didn't have any friends? We we I know, like, it, and and now suddenly we've got lots of friends, and it's beautiful. We're the popular, the popular kids. I don't know why I'm going school theme today, but everything in my head is is a class, a lesson, and and uh, being popular in school or not. So. Sean, do you want to introduce our guest? No. <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> he's, he's, a fight, he's a fighter today. He just want to you are in a fight. God. No. <laughs> no, it would be my honor to do that. Uh, inter- introduce our good friend, Philip Wiley, the hacker maker, as he's known. And I have uh, guests outside approving and calling <laughs> you. Somebody's happy. They're hawking yes. in support. Yes, they, so, they love they love honk if you like hawkers. Oh, <laughs> exactly. Like exactly. Uh, Phil, it's great to have you on, man. Yeah, look at that. Serious support of you, Phil. Well, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be on your show. As with everything else you guys do, you do great work and very cool to be on something new that you guys are doing. I mean, so thanks for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. And the big question here is, where and how do you make hackers? Do, huh? do you buy them in a store? Do, do, do you train them? Is it something they're just born like that? Cause, they come you know, in a box. I think you add water. You add water. <laughs> add water. <laughs> yeah. water, that's right. Is that... Turn the light, turn the yeah. light off, buy a hoodie. 
<laughs> Get some gloves. Add Mountain Dew, maybe. Instead of <laughs> Is that how it works, Phil? No, it's uh, it it could be a long hard. It could be a hard process depending on the person, you know, because you have some people that are just naturally gifted that they pick up stuff real easy. Then you got people that are really persistent that spend long hours learning. So uh, it's not always it's not always easy. Is one of the the hardest things for me to learn. You know, I've worked as a sysadmin, a AutoCAD drafter, and did network security, application security, and and hacking was one of the most difficult things for me to learn. Some people pick it up quicker, but it was wasn't wasn't easy for me, and it's not always easy for everyone. I think that there is this urban legend that hackers always come from the dark side and then eventually nah. become the good one. Well, you know, in the news, usually it's like that. We know it's not true. Yep. No, it's not true. But, I mean, uh, yeah. but we gotta fight that. Legend. Those are the stories that get the attention, right? Bad, mm. turn, evil turns, good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, just yeah. Like, just like the news has turned the hacker term bad. You know, when mm. the term hacker first came out, it was really more or less programmers and inventors, and to sensationalize news articles about cyber attackers, they termed them hackers, and so so it's kind of a challenge to try to get the story straight or at least share that there's more than than the bad guys you know the good guys use hacking as well i mean it's like a locksmith picking locks if you have permission is a highly needed skill but if you do it illegally then same thing with with the skill of of hacking into things you know as long as you're doing it for good that's a good thing so uh and it was, I mean, so when it originated decades ago at MIT, it was really a, a word to celebrate engineering ingenuity because the, the, the early hackers would do things like take a car apart and reassemble it on top of a building, which is like, I mean, that takes a lot of skill, a lot of knowledge, right? There was nothing illegal about it. They also rolled somebody named Smoot across a bridge and painted it. I'm not sure why that got into the, <laughs> <laughs> but, but right, but now it's been turned into that it, it, it unfortunately became like some criminal name rather than just really, engineers trying to figure out how things work. And then when you find out where there are vulnerabilities, when you understand how it works, you can help others to make it stronger. Yeah. And it's really kind of hard to undo that. And then going back to the original yeah. roots, you see the hackathons that, that yeah. still go on. Usually that's something programming related. So, yeah. so, it's, so it's good that there's people that support hackers and are trying to show that they do good things too as well. So uh, you know, like hacking is not a crime uh, organization. Chloe, Miss Doggy founded. She's, you know, that group has been doing things to try to, to help the name of hackers as well as Chris Roberts before, mm -hmm. uh, before Chloe and Brian got hacking is not a crime started. He was out there trying to show people that we're not all bad. Yep. That's right. A lot of friends there trying to do the right thing, but I, I don't know. I, I feel like, yeah, we're kind of late at the, at the party in a way, because every time I, I sometimes listen to the news in Italian, so I don't forget the language and uh, it, they, they don't even try there. I mean, I, I listen to the main radio when something happened that is a cyber crime, it's a hack. It's mm -hmm. not even, you know, <laughs> something around it. It's just like, if it's hacking, if it's hacked, it's bad. And yeah. I don't know how we're going to backtrack from there, but uh, I, I, I still trust it. I'm still going to bottle this. 
Yeah, we can't giving up. We, we can't give up. But I mean, there's people in our industry that should know better that still refer to cyber criminals, hackers. They don't use yep. the right terminology. That's pissed me off even more. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, the people in the industry, the people that are actually hackers, they should they should help us with that. So the yeah. media and marketing teams need to be uh, put in the corner, Marco. Ah, my baby. Yep, I am. I'm gonna. I'm gonna do it old school. I'm gonna put some like uh, I don't know, some little stone in the corner, and then they have to kneel on it. And uh, I'll, wow, I'm really. That sounds creepy. <laughs> well, you know that that's what they used to that. do. I don't know. I have Pinocchio in my head. I you know, as a little <laughs> kid, I was read that, and that's that's what uh, they did back in the days. Uh, now it will be like. All over the news. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I time, time <laughs> have changed. That's uh, that's for sure. That's for sure. And you know, I have a cool news. I think. Well, it's not a cool news per se because it goes in the history of uh, technology news. But I pick it just because I know Phil well enough, and I know one of his passions. So I cannot wait to unveil that one. I think it's going to be a good conversation about something that we used to use in the past quite a bit, and now we we don't use it anymore. It's become a vintage item, but we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Are you guys ready to start with the, with the news? Yeah. Yeah? Let's so we'll, Sean, same, uh, we keep the tradition. Uh, Diana, yeah. start. We keep the tradition, absolutely. The tradition, Diana. Okay, all right. So today I'm going to mix a little bit of tech, uh, historical tech with uh, modern tech and bring in art too. So Marco, this is kind of, kind of you. Love it. Yeah. Uh, so this one is that historically, 2,500 years ago, pottery was used and it was very popular for you know decoration and telling stories, Odonic Grecian urn kind of stories, right? And in Athens, Greek heroes like Heracles, who was known to the Romans as Hercules, or for any fans of Eddie Murphy's clump-themed oeuvre, Hercules, Hercules, with the clap, right? <laughs> Hercules, Hercules. Hercules, yeah. Uh, they are very popular figures to, to put on, uh, on these vases. So Hercules was a popular one. And the style of the time was that when you'd create one of these vases that you would paint the character in black and then you would fire it. And so all of them were coming out with these black characters on the urns, you know, black inked characters. And one day a potter and historians believe he was named Andakides. I don't know if, if that's if it's pretty hard when you're going back 2,500 years. So if I've misattributed the, the correct potter, then maybe the descendants will let me know, but historians think it was Andakides, uh, thought that, hey, let's mix things up rather than using black ink to paint the character. Why don't we try a color, Why don't, a different color? Why don't we try red? That would be really interesting. But it was actually technically really hard to accomplish creating a red uh, figurine rather than um, using the traditional black figurines. Because when you, the way that they created black was they would put it in the kiln and then the smoke turned it black. So even if you painted in advance, it would be hard to get um, red paint. But what this potter found out was that if you actually went to like sort of 11 with the fire, which was incredibly hard to do because, you know, they were using wood. And, you know, if you've ever cooked outside using wood as, as your fire source, you know, it can be pretty hard to get the temperature right compared to when you're cooking on like a gas stove or anything. Um, but 
Andokides figured it out. He did, in fact, succeed in creating uh, for this this one pot. Uh, it was Hercules chasing a bull. I think was able to create that figurine in red by using the you know by essentially creating a, a new technology. And there are still. 55 of those vases today still in existence that showed those very early implementations of that techniques. And, um, you know, the question is, though, if you, you know, if any of us, Phil or Sean or Marco, if we went to a museum and we saw one of those 55 vases, would we look at it and go, huh, that's a lovely antique red and black vase and look, Hercules is red? Or would we think, uh, you know, like, oh my God, we're looking at this incredible change that was you know, really moved forward how pottery was done 2,500 years ago. We'd probably just think, oh, that's really nice and kind of move on. So that's where we get to the modern technology, which is museums uh, trying to bring this sort of context enrichment of that story I just told, but how can you bring that in and help people experience it when they're going through a museum? And the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, in, in collaboration with Zeta Media, which is a company in Cyprus, they created this short animation called How to Make an Athenian Vase, which shows that aha moment that Andokides had and came up with the idea to use the red and figured out the technology to create that red coloring on the fired pot. So now visitors, when they go to the museum, they can see the pot, but they can also see this little short film that creates a little bit of that aha thrill for themselves and creates this context-rich environment to experience the art in, which I absolutely love because one of the main complaints you hear from people sometimes if you're in a foreign country or a foreign city and you say, let's go to the museum, they're like, yeah, it's boring or it's flat. You know, it just doesn't feel like it has anything to do with their life. And this now brings people into the experience of art and a couple of other things that they're using multimedia for. One is that Van Gogh exhibit, which is massive multimedia, which really changes the art and allows you to be immersive in it. But there are multimedia experiences that don't really change the art, though the way that it reminds me of, um, you remember when they were colorizing all those black and white movies? And a lot mm -hmm. of folks were like, oh my God, we've like destroyed these beautiful films and all the shadows and how they were shot. It just isn't the same when it's colorized. So they're not doing that for this multimedia art. What they're doing is they're trying to give an overlay or an extra experience. So one example is when we go to see uh, the very ancient statues, right? They always seem to have broken noses and no arms. And we don't know if they were just one color when they were being displayed or if they had multiple colors. So you still look at the statue, it's still there, you st still see it in its present reality, but now you can overlay or have on the side, um, and I think your dog is excited about that. Um, they can she loves it, she loves it. <laughs> overlay or have on the side, like a colorized, complete model. So you're not replacing the art like with the black and white colorization, you're just giving people another way to experience the art so that they can contextualize it, kind of feel like if they were there when it was actually being done when it was made and when it was first seen. So I thought that was really cool. So that was my tech. That is really cool. Should I go? Yeah. Okay. Go. go. I think the key for this understanding art and, and even technology, you always have to contextualize it. When was this done? Mm -hmm. Right? Or I'm, you I'm having <laughs> or you go in the corner. I'm having fun reading now or uh, 
very old book, like, for example, I'm trying because it's really tough. Uh, the hunt bet, the hunt bet, the hunchback of Notre Dame, right? Victor okay. Hugo. Yeah. It's tough. I mean, the way that they uh. write back then, just to get into the, you know, into the pathos, into the, 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 the action, it takes the hell forever. The language is different. And you may think, like, what are they talking about here, right? But you have to put yourself into that mindset of when this was written. And if you watch the yeah. movies, as you said, from the 60s, the 50s, the, the 30s, or even the 80s, they, they seem so stupid sometimes, the way that we're used to this fast action nowadays. And you're like, wait a minute, but this was done back then. What kind of technology did we have then? And based on that, is this a masterpiece or not? Yeah. So my my my, my mental work here is it's always that is don't judge it by what you do know now, but what they do knew back then. Yeah, and even I remember when I was in, in college that at one point at one of my my classes, uh, someone said, "Why can't Shakespeare just write in English?" And <laughs> And, you know, I, well, I got, guess what? <laughs> you know, I sort of got where he was coming from, you know, because that it's it's hard sometimes to get your mind or if you want to even go back like earlier, like Beowulf or, or Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales, it's it does feel kind of like, why can't they write in, in English? Because it can be it can feel so distant from us. But when you can get into when you understand a little bit about the history and the time and also how they used English, the language differently, then it can become very vibrant. And we we do see this with, you know, with Victor Hugo, Hunchback of Notre Dame, right? Disney created a whole story about it, you know, that that was a cartoon that the children loved. So they were able to bring the, the story forward even though I think having eight-year-old kids probably read Hugo in the original French would and even for French kids might be a little bit, or for native French speakers might be a little oh, difficult. Oh, yeah. We, we need to translate the Divine Comedy <laughs> when we read that. It's not, it's Italian of the time. It's not oh, really, yeah. It's not really Italian, but many other art, piece of art and literature, you have to translate it for sure. Yeah. Philip, you, you love movies. I know that. Ooh. Oh, what's, yes. What's your take on that when you watch like a classic or, or an old movie? How, how do you get into understanding the value of it? It's really understand, interesting and in, in that you mentioned that one of the things that I was reminded of recently is, is watching some old older movies and it's interesting to see how talented some of the child actors were back then. You know, acting's been around a lot longer and there's a lot more opportunities for education in that area, but uh, really kind of amazing. One of the ones that just kind of surprised me was like a, a John Voight movie, The Champ or something like that. Rick Schroeder uh. was in it and just he did a pretty good job as a young, uh, as a kid, you know, doing the acting in that film. So it's really, I think when we get into the older uh, arts and stuff that, you know, there's a lot more that had to be done than now things are so automated, you know, you have CGI and the advantages of some of these different schools that people didn't have one time, but just the, just like going back to the, the vase, you think about all the effort that goes into that. Now, you know, you throw something on a 3d printer nowadays, although there's some, things that go into it but just how much easier it is to produce those things that i think people sometimes don't appreciate it when you think about the time and effort it took to originally do those sort of crafts well it begs a question for me um when it's easy do we appreciate it when, when it's something 3d printed 
is it novel and unique and kind of cool, but throw away because who cares? It printed in a few minutes. And I'm, I, I counter that with the complexity and sticking with the movie idea. I mean, how much visual effects and, and music and the switching of the angles of the camera and how many multiple cameras, maybe there's even, I don't even know what the technology is, but the, the cameras that move around, so you get the 3D, 3D feel of it versus some of the older movies where you're really relying on the actors portraying and telling a story and you don't have as much impact from the music and from the special effects and all the other stuff that goes around it. And are, are we as humans like aching for that complex, very creative, multifaceted thing? Or can we appreciate something simple from the past? Mm. That's a good point. Like, I do say, we have to I work say, for it? I don't think we appreciate anything. But... Yeah, like, do we have to work for it? Like the little prince and his rose. And the more we work for it, the more we appreciate it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, 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 the vase example is, is perfect because it, it, it's simple now, although you probably can't recreate it as beautiful as they were done at the time with that technology. But that, that mm. time, that technology was the, was the 3D printing of today. You know, that's a good point you know you yeah. you can make you can look at uh, i don't remember the the name of the cave but the, the most ancient um art find inside the cave in france i just can i'm blinking on the name but anyway it's 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 you know depicting uh bull and bisons and and hunting and it's really much sticky figures in a way and you're like what that's that kid did that no somebody actually figured out something that didn't exist at the time Mm. That he could paint on the wall, express himself, and and the technology that they had at the time was that probably just a, a you know a, a, some piece of wood that was burning the fire and <laughs> use it to to paint, or I think they use that their colorant as well. So it's we're too easy to judge based on what we know today, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, and that goes with computers too. I mean, it's like ah, oh, floppy disk. <laughs> what can I put in there? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not like oh, I got one gigabyte download, but try with a dial-up modem <laughs> 25 years ago, 30 years ago. And we just can't even wait for that two gigabyte video to download. <laughs> yeah, we're used to it. So way, way back in the day we had, it wasn't even a, a, a disc. It was <laughs> to use a, a, basically a, um, a tape put things into the computer. I remember my first hard drive was 10 megabytes and I was like over the moon. I thought I had infinite storage. Yeah. <laughs> you can store an entire book in there. Well, can we not appreciate it because it's not old enough? Do those technologies? Uh, maybe. Or were they just well, really not very good? Huh. There is always that uh, three soul that be, has to cut. Has like, to you know, nostalgic. Stuff stuff get old, and then out first outdated, then old, and then all of a sudden it become vintage and acquire value again. And if you're lucky, mm -hmm. it becomes antique, and that's when it's really worth a lot of money. So I don't know. You may not throw anything like you know my parents, <laughs> and I'm like, well, if you wait for that to take value, we're done. But uh, I don't know. Well, you never know. So there are plenty of people that collect things like that. Supposedly that vinyl is final records are so in demand that they can't keep up with the um, manufacturing because a lot of the 
manufacturing capability was you know, modernized for I almost brought that things. news today. Let me, okay. Let me see. Just mm. a side tangent because let me see if I can find it. Vinyl sales see a 94% increase it's crazy. this year. Consider it was zero. It's <laughs> 94% increase. It's incredible. You know, the yeah. book industry last Warner's year went up 21% million dollars uh, market value. Yeah. And book uh, are, revenue, book, books are coming back too, Sean. Physical books. Physical books. And now they're having problem printing them because of the disruption of the yeah. of the production chain and how they switch from making papers um, and making car box because of the shipping through the pandemic and COVID yeah. is all, all complex thing. Uh, it's crazy. Back to the future. Back to the future. That's it. Phil, you're going to bring us back to the future. I, I, I heard you have something about vintage computers. Is that true? Quite, quite the opposite. So, <laughs> I know. So, I know. I was teasing. <laughs> so, yeah, being a, a, a fan of, of uh, Apple computers and the Macs, uh, I was pretty excited that this week that they released the, the new processors and the new models of MacBook Pros come out. They released the the M1 Pro and the in the M1 Max. I actually got one of the M1 uh, MacBook Pros back towards the end of last year, and really liked it. And uh, so I was excited to see what would happen. But as anyone that buys Apple products, then you kind of get frustrated that they're coming out with something a year or six months later that's better and faster than what you had. So it's pretty pretty impressive because I mean. The M1 Pro holds up to has up to 32 gigabytes of RAM. Previously on the M1 chips, the most you could get was 16 gigs. Now with the M1 Pro, you can get 32 gigs. With the M1 Max, you get 64 gigabytes. So I was really before this come out, I was really wondering what the future was going to be like for their servers and and some of their tower computers because I'm thinking you had these. Uh, what are you going to do to replace the chips there? You know because the memory was only like 16 gigabytes and so forth. So they're starting to improve. So it's got me really uh, looking forward to seeing what they come out with as far as their servers. I was in a computer store recently looking at one of their, their servers. And one of the things I'm also a fan of their, their uh, products is just the aesthetics. They really make nice looking products compared to, you know, some of the other uh, computer companies, the industry, and you see a lot of those other companies kind of copy the look of some of the Mac products. But so just the technology and everything, it's pretty cool. I really it's really interesting that they combine everything on on a single chip. You know, you've got the processor, you've got the memory. So you can't. So downside is you can't add more memory. But, uh, you know, Apple kind of got that way. Their computers several years back that you couldn't upgrade memory. You had to buy, you know, the amount of memory you want at the time. So it's really cool that. The memory is on the same on the same chip. It's shared between the CPU and the graphics processor, which is going to make it faster. You know, you're not having to go across the bus of the the motherboard and all that. So, pretty exciting, and especially also too. It's ARM processors, so that's really cool that they're moving into that area, lower power and. And Phil, for, I'm for looking the forward people... to playing my vinyl on it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay, why not? So for, for the people that are maybe not too technical, give it give us a couple of examples because to me, this seems like one of those, you know, Apple and other companies, you know, they they 
they give you something new every year. We've been through this in the past. We like keep what works for you, but we're not going there today. But once in a while, there is actually that the really big break that is an innovation. So this 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 chip that they just released and they they were testing it already on the iPad Pro, and so it seems to me I really allowing some kind of a revolution on the way that we that we do things. So can you put a couple of practical examples of why this is, on your opinion, so exciting as a news? Yeah, I think it's where I really think it's exciting is you go back, you look at the ARM processors because, you know, we've had the 64-bit Intel-based processors, you know, because at one time, you know, you had uh, the PowerPC that IBM created, which actually at one point was the processor that Apple used in their products. And you had, uh, well, there's, there were so many trying to remember some of the processors because in my sysadmin days, I started out in 97 and there were several different uh, architectures. And so people started kind of settling on the Intel processors. Yes. You know, Mac was using the uh, Intel processors and their devices until they came out with their own. But the idea of the ARM processors taking less energy you know, you, that was kind of popular, popularized in some of your IoT devices and some of your your computing uh, platforms like Raspberry Pis. And, and me personally, I never thought it would scale to be that powerful, but they've shown like benchmarks comparing like the Intel i9 processor compared to the M1 that was the processor that came out last year. The the first version of the Intel, they also refer to as in the, uh, I mean, not Intel, but the Apple M1 is also referred to as Apple Silicon. They started creating their own chip. So some of that that should benefit us as consumers is hopefully to keep the prices down as well. They're creating their own processors instead of having to purchase processors from, from Intel. And then as far as like the uh, software, you know, they're making the hardware and the software. So ideally your operating system and software should all work better together, you know, since it's basically designed to, to work as one. Yeah, that's giving me some flashbacks to the whole risk. Yeah, you, as you were talking about PowerPC and the Apple, IBM, Motorola Alliance, that was kind of unholy. <laughs> yeah. And I forgot too, Alpha was one of the other chips I was forgetting about. The DEC Alpha. Yeah. Chip. Yeah. Oh, yeah, DEC. So I, I guess the question here is, you know, it's exciting that they always do so much more, but is I understand for research and maybe using it for machine learning, artificial intelligence, where you really need a lot of power, calculating power to do things. So that's increased is always welcome. But Diana and Sean, what's your take on this? On <laughs> when is enough for the everyday user, the power that we get from, from this computer? You know, it's it's interesting because I think we get to the point that there's we're sort of where the everyday user is going to be okay, but then the something will happen. You know, like there's a, a shift. Like for example, we were we were there for a few years, I think, in terms of we could all store our videos and play most of that. The um, apps do most of the productivity apps we needed, but then suddenly we needed to do tons and tons of video. Mm. Uh, so I think that that you know we get these these 
changes in how we use the tech and that causes the expansion. The other thing that goes on is like we get, and I was curious if Phil was gonna mention um, Monterey is the new operating system coming out from Apple. I think it's coming out next week, if that's right, Phil will tell me. Um, but we also just had Windows 11, which is like, you, you need to have a certain level of modern hardware in order to run Windows 11. So I think that happens too, as the operating systems kind of push us as consumers because they're gonna do so much more. And for us to take advantage, we have to upgrade. I don't know, Phil, what are, what are your thoughts on Monterey? Yeah, that's, I just saw that the beta was was out for that and just yeah. kind of, and saw that some people were having problems trying to install the beta. And sometimes when they come out with new versions, of the OS, you run into problems, but back on your point about the Windows 11 and thinking about this new hardware platform, uh, actually Windows, I guess Windows 10 actually came out with versions that'll run on ARM processors. So you could actually install on Raspberry Pis. So it's really gonna be interesting mm -hmm. to see if the industry is really gonna adopt the ARM uh, processors because you can yeah. run Windows on it. And so it really makes you wonder how it's yep. gonna go. For me, it's a question of what is the everyday user? And kind of to the, the, it's not a direct yeah. thing that comes to my mind, but I'm just thinking back to the 3D printing, right? Something has to control that, presumably, um, that printer. Uh, perhaps it's some kind of CAD system that's uh, running on a Mac. And I think about how many, and I'll, I'll, I was joking about playing my vinyl, but <laughs> how, many, how many people create music? Even if it's just hobby, semi-pro, want to be pro, pretending to be pro, uh, there's music, <laughs> videos, there's, I mean, virtual reality, all gaming. I mean, all these things where we, again, back to where we want these really complex, in, uh, very integrated, <laughs> very high, high, uh, high energy type activities, they're going to need these types of computers. So it's not just running a spreadsheet or, or yeah. having a having a pile of videos you want to watch. I think it's creating the videos and the music that goes in them and, and all that good stuff. So I, I think there are enough people that have hobbies mm -hmm. that require some of these technologies that require the bigger, bigger machines. Yeah. You know, you know, actually what I'm, where I'm going with my head is, is the metaverse and all the virtual reality. I mean, they, <laughs> I, I, Apple, up, apparently Apple is coming out maybe next year with their, uh, with their um, virtual reality goggles. So that would be interesting how the microchip that they use integrate <laughs> with their entire system. And uh, yeah, we, we, we want to have that stuff realistic. I want those goggles to listen in on the- uh, On the vinyl? The Facebook, the Facebook <laughs> listen to vinyl, sure. <laughs> I'm gonna put the goggles I want them to, to listen in the on the Facebook <laughs> sunglasses. Oh. <laughs> to hear, hear what they're hearing. Well, you know, if the if the virtual metaverse, it's it's what we're looking for uh, ahead of us, which I think it is for for a lot of people. No need to go into Ready Player One, but uh, you know, cannot think about that and how much power we're gonna need for for that stuff. But yeah. now I'm and getting utopian dystopian. <laughs> distributed computing, Marco. Think think about the podcast we did yesterday where transhumanism. Oh yeah, or, or forget one big giant chip in a in a machine with a bunch of stuff distributed throughout the body. Talking about the next level of edge computing, where the That's computing right. happen in your you fingers. You are the edge. You are the edge, and not the good one from you two. The other <laughs> edge. Ah <laughs> uh, yes. Wow. Yeah. 
That was that was a good reference, especially considering that we got the free YouTube the the free YouTube album several years back through the. Oh yeah, yeah. We did that. Oh right, yeah. <laughs> See how everything get connected back and forth. <laughs> James James N listening to us live says not interested. He's not interested. Okay, right. well that's cool. Okay. Um, you know, I I'm interested, but I haven't tried virtual reality that much yet. So. It's all in my head. Um, I may I not be interested once I try uh, in depth. I tried Second Life. It was very cumbersome. But a, a friend of mine said that his marketing team has been having meetings, marketing meetings in Red Dead, Red Dead Redemption 2, which I can't even begin to imagine um, what that might be like. But <laughs> Can you explain us what that is? Red Dead Redemption 2 is, and I'm probably going to get this a little bit convoluted, is as I understand it, it's sort of a, um, it's a mission-based game set in the Old West that has a lot of shooting that goes on. So you have to get your horse and go out and do some. So it's kind of like if you were thinking of like Grand Theft Auto mm -hmm. and missions, but it's in the Old West. And I, I guess that you get into your avatar and you, right, you can meet up with friends and go talk to them. So you have a drink I mean, at the salon. A drink at the at the saloon, exactly. And I <laughs> or, or the salon, or the salon for cutting your hair. <laughs> exactly. I mean, like you know, like have a whole spa day at the salon. Have your champagne and your. Uh, but although, who knows? In, in in Red Dead, if they have a salon, um, maybe they have a beauty parlor. Yeah. Uh, but. But in any case, apparently the, this marketing team at this company, they decided, hey, we all really like being in Red Dead. And what's the difference if we're on Zoom at, or if we're our, in our game characters in Red Dead Redemption 2? I was a little concerned because I was like, are they talking about anything proprietary? And is it possible that other people might be able to hear it? But, um, you know, it just made me realize that when people were predicting uh, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, that Second Life was going to be where we all did business, that... Maybe it's not Second Life, but here we are all doing business on Zoom a lot of the time. And now, sure, why not just take that into Red Dead Redemption 2 or whatever game of your choice? I mean, I I might want to have meetings in Animal Crossing, and maybe why not? <laughs> I may want to have a meeting in Dungeons and Dragons and dress like go. a wizard. Why not? If that's what I like. <laughs> a wizard well, in Animal Crossing. The, the future yes. is going to be interesting, especially the virtual one. And yeah, James, me too. I That's why I haven't really tried VR much because I get car sick. And the, the few times that I tried to, the, the goggles, I just got, I had to take them off. So I'm right there with you. Uh, Sean, you got any news or what, what's going on in your neck of the world? So my news is about uh, Animal Crossing. Squirrel? No, really? No, it's not. Oh, <laughs> you got me all excited. <laughs> so, if as the word animals, Diana's gonna love it, <laughs> right? Well, maybe yeah, it does have animals, I guess. Okay. Yeah, I guess it does. Insects, anyway. Okay. So, I'll make this quick because I know we 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 have a, a pretty hard stop coming. Yeah, and I have to bring but, the history. One. Yeah, and I'm gonna want to get into the history one as well. So this is uh, some research done. Uh, where is it done? I probably should have had that up quickly. Contact. Uh, University of 
wagon, wagon, wagoning. <laughs> you're gonna, have, it's in the Netherlands anyway. So forgive me for mispronouncing it. But uh, the, the thing is, and the reason this caught my attention is it's looking at plants and how they react to attacks. And there are, they've been studying the plants to realize that they know not just, well, I guess they analyze, if something comes and, and eats their leaves or, or uh, nibbles on their petals or, uh, or chomps away at their roots, they know what it was based on how it chomped and nibbled and the saliva it left behind. And they keep a memory, evidently, of kind of the season <laughs> of time in which they were nibbled and chomped. And so they, they, they kind of keep, they, I think they use the, the number five here. I don't know why, but kind of yeah. a series of, of, okay, the moth comes around this time and it's followed by the, or maybe the caterpillar comes around this time and the moth comes around this time and, and uh, aphids come around a different time. And basically they, they know this cycle and they prepare themselves for these types of attacks and they adjust the chemicals in their, their leaves or the way they, they, they harden their leaves and, and they basically respond and prepare them or they prepare themselves and then respond to the attacks that they know are coming based on history. Wow. And, and what was really cool for me, I mean, it, shocking. I mean, I, I'm sure everybody listening to this is thinking, okay, so plants can figure this out yet security program. <laughs> now now get a get a plant as a CISO right and I'm not making a little fun but in this article it talks about risk management and and plants having yeah. the ability to understand the risk they face when they're likely going to face it prepare themselves for it and and put up defenses based on the attacks that they're they're going to have now of course if there's a there's a locust outbreak. They're probably not going to be prepared for that and, and uh, mm -hmm. get nibbled away to, to the ground. <laughs> so there are some risks that you can't either you may not be prepared for or know about or less, let alone uh, be prepared for, even if you did. But the idea that, that plants can do this was, uh, was pretty cool to me. So they, they changed their physiology and then overall the ecology of the plant systems kind of take this on with them. That really is interesting as, as I mean, well, it's just really interesting, but it, it also um, it, it is interesting in the sense that, you know, there's a lot of debate about nature and nurture and, and what we learn versus what is innate within our, our, our genes and, and epigenetics. We know that genes can instruct other genes to do, you know, that we can pass down learning that is through the genes, right? Not just through... Um, because it, it, with the case of plants, they don't have the same kind of brain function that you'll find even in an, an insect, for example, and certainly in, in mammals, when you get out of like reptiles and stuff, you get into mammals and, and the more complex thinking. So it, it kind of makes me wonder, again, how much of what we do is because our brains are actually getting into the process versus how much do we do because our, our genes and epigenetics are, are because you think about how complex that response is in the plants and they don't even have a brain to they don't have a model view controller to help figure it out. <laughs> you know, it's, it's all just in there. Yep. 
their makeup. Yeah, the, the, good, the good news part of this story is that they're the research isn't just to understand how plants do this, but it's they're using it to breed new varieties of plants that can grow and sustain mm. in environments where traditionally pesticides have been used. So if they can teach or in, in or crossbreed this DNA, if you will, the, the mindset mm -hmm. of the plant without having a mind into crops uh, where they don't need to use pesticides and other harmful uh, means to control pests. The plants can do it themselves. They can kind of learn their own environment and, and be prepared for the things that are normally coming their way. That was, that was a cool, another cool part of this for me. But apparently yeah. plants have been doing that. And now we try to change the way they do it. <laughs> Less than easy, let them, leave them alone. Get in the way, right? Supercharge it, I guess. Yeah, I yeah. was thinking that because then, then you'll have GMO, which will be some yeah. other, um, but yeah, which is, which is worse. Um, try to supercharge the resilience and the defense mechanism of the plant or spraying some potentially dangerous to bees and other insects pesticide on it. Um, yeah, other other useful insects. Well, all insects are useful, but like, you know I, what I mean. It's controversial because so we, we don't want to modify the plant, and I, I yeah understand that. Yet we're fine modifying ourselves with medications and things. I don't know. So Phil, yeah. how, what can a pen tester <laughs> learn from this? What from can a, a pen tester from learn? a plant? <laughs> That react to to the bite of the insect and you know all that. Sean said, "How is that about being ready and prepare?" And yeah, don't let your customers bite you. <laughs> <laughs> and in fairness, Jay, I, I did pick on the organizations; they don't get it right. James makes a good point. Some some actually do. <laughs> yeah. Well, but you know, it's a it's a trial and error, and it's experience. Right, so then you, you figure out what uh, what something happened constantly, like the plant, and they're like, you know what, this is gonna keep happening. I better do, I better do something. Except that maybe they they change their behavior in many many yeah. generations, uh, transmitting different genes in the the, the DNA, and uh, and we need to adapt <laughs> a little faster mm -hmm. than that, I guess. Okay. Every time I hear about just how plants, just how complex their their lives are, and you know, we know now that plants feel pain. It's like a little part of me is like, ugh, you know, because like I became a vegan because I wanted to stop hurting things, and it's mm. like the more and more I learn, like there's just no way, there's just no way to be on this planet and not and survive it's, without it's, some. It, it's all connected. That, yeah. that's what we learn. It was like the beautiful. Um, this strange rock was uh, the TV show with uh, Will Smith that they go with the people that astronauts have been spending time in space on the International Space Station and how yeah. they change perspective in looking at from yeah. the top how everything is literally connected on, on the planet. Yeah. Um, talking about documentaries and videos, and I, I want to involve Phil into this um, short news, and I know we have a hard stop in 10 minutes, so... Um, my my uh, my news was that a day in history, October 19, 1985, the first blockbuster video rental stores opened in Dallas, Texas. So it's kind of in your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. 
Phil, and it's in a passion that you have, which is movies. Yeah. And what I wanted to talk, apart from the, the rise and fall of Starbucks, I mean, sorry, of Blockbuster, uh, I always mix you, Are you breaking news here, Mark? Wow, <laughs> I yeah. know. <laughs> what do you no, Starbucks is doing okay, I guess. It's a prediction. No. It's not really good. It's not, it's not my cup of coffee, but it's, it's doing all right. You heard it here, folks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> breaking news. Write this down. Write this down. Uh, it's my subconscious that is reading the future, right? Yeah, now. And the demise is, is originating in Dallas, Texas, is what I hear. Exactly. <laughs> instead of Seattle. Uh, so now my point I wanted to talk about is how things have changed in the way that we consume uh, movies, of course, and, and, mm. uh, and documentaries with the advent of you know, the, the cassette, which is, was before, of course, uh, Blockbuster came around, but Blockbuster made it omnipresent all over pretty much the United States and, and in other places. But how from a societal perspective and i know that you know we we were we were already born at that time i, I think most of us all of us yep <laughs> and uh you know and and what that means for somebody that is passionate about movies and be able to consume the movie when you want to watch it again and record stuff compared with it's either the movie theater or when the the TV channels show it to you I, I i think it means a lot but everybody probably has a different memory about it yeah, it's just amazing. Who would have ever thought that, you know, before in the blockbuster days that you mm-hmm. had to go rent movies while, you know, the stores are open and now you have like Redbox if you're still consuming things like through DVDs mm-hmm. or, or Blu-ray discs, you're able to to pick those up when you want. But who had ever thought back then in the blockbuster days that you'd be able to get movies when the store was closed? And it's interesting the way technology evolves to take away these business models. So you really have to evolve to stay up with the, the technology because, you know, pretty much all these store, I think all the blockbusters are gone now and you really don't see, you know, places outside Redbox anymore to be able to rent videos. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. And I, I do remember that feeling of remember we used to wait every year for it's the great pumpkin. Well, I used to wait every year for it's the great mm-hmm. pumpkin, Charlie Brown. And, and the other day we were done with, Oh, I guess we were watching Ted Lasso and I, I looked on Apple and, and they have all the, the peanuts specials. And it's just so strange, kind of to your point earlier, Sean, of like, I mean, maybe I appreciate it or maybe do the kids appreciate it less because they can watch it's a, the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown, whenever they want, as opposed to, you know, waiting for once a year. And, you know, remember that, like you didn't want to leave the, the room and go get a snack or anything because you're like, it's yet yeah, half an hour. You just sit there and watch. And that was your one chance all year. Everybody's just everybody's just thinking about (laughs) these movies that we used to watch at that specific times, but you know, like as Phil said, and Sean, I think you you have something to say about this is because we were talking about the business model of how Netflix changed the the perception of how you consume stuff, but again. Going back to your initial thoughts and, and news, uh, Diana, about we need to put things into context, how much of a big revolution was the VHS at the time and the fact that mm. you could access a place that maybe was not a mom and pop shows with a limited amount of video available and then the, 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 the blockbuster come in with, you know, kind of with the good and the bad because, you know, the mom and pop shop, they definitely got hurt by 
by that, but the consumption yeah. of it, and uh, I don't know the time spent inside those those big store and finally picking and moving and realizing it's not available. <laughs> you know, it's like, damn it. And then you pay the late fees mm -hmm. and all of that. You have to yeah. look behind every cover box first just to find out. Yeah. That's don't, right. Don't yeah. get too attached to something without knowing there. if it was yeah. there. Yeah. It's just a bunch of covers. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, uh, Marco, I don't know if, uh, I mean, I'm thinking that what the the innovation? I know we talked a bit about this in an episode, but the the innovation of was it the 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 tape itself that was innovative? Was it the distribution model that that they mm. decided to stand up all the stores that was innovative? Let's be honest. I mean, we, we were looking at the the vast right. It it survived. It's high quality. It's valuable. Um, mm -hmm. it has some, at least some sentimental value, and certainly probably an antique value there. <sighs> and other antique VHS tapes. Do we do we get satisfaction watching a VHS? And then I, I, I'm thinking in, in comparison to listening to a vinyl record. There's something special mm. about a vinyl record. <sighs> we want to listen to that, but a VHS, where it's probably all warbly and probably going to get caught in the in the rewinder after you watch it anyway so it's going to be toast the, just mm. the quality is in there so the, the innovation of That's the tape true. doesn't really strike me as exciting but the i think it was the way you consume it that was different mm. i agree with you the quality certainly wasn't better phil no. do you still have a vhs and then a vhr uh we still have we still have a vcr we just oh, yeah? we've kind of kept it we don't I use it it's just we just kind of have it here in the closet somewhere you just can't get rid of it you want it i kind of held on <laughs> to it till i could get some of my wrestling videotapes converted ah, yeah so nice was, yeah yeah so i held on to it to get that converted but... and see that that was probably another unique point where you could record what you wanted yep mm -hmm. right yes that was a big that was a big deal because it was so expensive yeah. earlier. So the first and then, point, he, he now yeah. has uh, something important to him captured mm. in a way that he can consume it. Now, again, it's not going to last long in that format. So hopefully you get yeah. it off, off it's, at some point. But. It's on YouTube now. So, <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and if you remember, there was something in between where there was the table where you could do the recording without having to do the, the, having to have the the vhs and uh and uh th there was a again technology that it's always evolving in something yeah. else and uh, you may yeah. love the conception of something and and not and it's passionate and it i hope something never gonna die like the book right i mean i i love audiobook <laughs> but just because it's convenient but if i could choose i'd probably just read the book so there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Common thread here is what we want on demand. It's the on demand. That's what we really want. Right? It is on demand. Yeah. Yeah. I want it now. Like what is it? Violet Beauregard. I want it and I want it now. <laughs> but you, you you know one thing that I'm thinking right now is you know, like now you own music that you don't really own because the moment that you're gonna stop paying. 
<laughs> for the pro, your <laughs> library is like puff, uh -uh. it's gone. All your playlists or whatever you have. So you, you need to be conscious about that. But I still have vinyl that about when I was a kid. And I'm not going to get rid of them. And I can, I always going to own them. So these habit of renting something as a service mm. versus versus owning something. Same thing, Sean, you may be making fun on that podcast we did the other day. And we were saying things like, oh, you had to return the the tape. And now you're like, and you said, Sean, yeah, but now you only have like 24 hours to watch whatever you've been renting online yeah, because otherwise it expires anyway, unless you yeah. want to buy it. And in that case, you have it. So we're still trapped. <laughs> almighty, uh, the almighty buck will rule. You can buy it and store it up in, in Amazon. And if you buy music through Amazon, you can download it and back it up on hard drives if you want to. So there's, but I mean, that's a whole lot less. I mean, Vinyl records are gorgeous, right? They kind of glow and there's this wonderful tactile feel. And if you ever DJ, right, that like pulling it back to cue it up just perfectly with, you know, as soon as the needles, there's just so much fun about vinyl that I think when you think about VHS or even, you know, getting MP3s sitting on a hard drive, it just, you kind of lose so much of that. In addition to the fact that they sound very cool on vinyl, songs sound cool on vinyl. And they're really cool when it's a picture disc. Oh, yeah. Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> the good old scratching on the, <laughs> on the vinyl. <laughs> yeah. well, listen, I know we have a hard stop here. Yep. So I, I want to uh, thank everybody for listening in, catching up with us live, interacting with us on, uh, on social media. Huge thanks to Phil for joining us and uh, bringing some cool tech news to bear look at that more honks for you honks <laughs> for you it's all for phil do you, do you right have a it. sound machine there that you can <laughs> a sound machine just for phil. <laughs> no we we we're so lucky to have the the hosting family on itsp magazine that we have and and phil what you're doing for the the hacking community is amazing and i i love the fact that people are getting that and um yeah, keep doing it, man. We, we'd thank love to you, have Tom. you on. And thank you, Diana. Thank you, Marco. Thanks, everybody, for uh, joining us this week on Through the Tech Vine. Stay tuned for next episodes. And uh, that will be the Halloween one. So maybe, yeah. we'll, maybe we'll really have a sound machine then. And talking about sounds, Phil, thank you so much. Diana already gone. Uh, play the music. We're out. See thank you next you, and uh, we'll talk to you next week, same time. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Enjoyed this episode of Through the Tech Vine podcast. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. 
You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.